Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be here and um, not sure I should be here because I feel like I've sat on that side so many times and received such wisdom and deep knowledge and understanding of Buddhist philosophy. And I have a thimble full of that to contribute, but I'm going to look at it from the artistic perspective. Um, I had to write it all out because I was nervous about forgetting, and I created this little tower of podia, <laughs> so I can actually see my script, um, so I'll be relying on that heavily, and tower of podia might be a good sci-fi film, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I, I want to consider with you what are the connections between somatic awareness of the body and the Buddhist concept of being present in the moment, and artistic expression. Um, and, I, and I know you might be thinking, as I think, does artistic expression or artistic practice really belong in that company? Um, we all know that artists are egotistical, barret-wearing, 
narcissists <laughs> and that they are not to be trusted. Um, and I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but I had been asking myself in the last decade or so, maybe longer, can one's artistic practice, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that means, coincide with or contribute to the Buddhist practice of skillful living. Uh, for me, artistic practice means a body practice, a somatic practice. Um, somatic means uh, acknowledging what the body feels, but also trying to understand and employ some of the mechanisms of the body to reach understanding. Um, we're going to come back to that in a little while. I want, I want to talk a little bit about ritual practice. Um, I'm not, I don't love that word because it implies something archaic and ceremonial, and I don't think of it, I don't, I don't like that so much, but in a way it is ritual in that it's repeated. Um, but I want to talk to you about how I, how I got here, uh, to this way of thinking, because I didn't start off in my artistic career thinking about how practice could benefit my life. Um, I think I grew up, as most of us probably did, in an American culture that is very um, achievement-oriented, very kind of vertical. Like, I thought becoming an artist meant that you, you accumulate a lot of skill, a lot of undeniable skills that you could do. You paired that with your innate talent or genius, which is a concept I find very dubious now, but used to believe in. <laughs> and, um, and then you had a vision. You had some master vision. So you just had these three components. And this is what I was taught very clearly in my artistic training. You had skill, and you have to really put your nose to the grindstone. You have talent, and you have vision. And you have those three components, and if they're big enough and bold enough, and bright enough, you can make some kind of art that is unassailably fabulous, and everyone will bow down to it, and you will be an artist. Um, so that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm sorry to say, I think it's pretty much still the common wisdom out there about art making. Um, But I realized at a certain point that uh, it was all about becoming this thing, this great artist, um, this very special person that, that lived in some elevated plane. And I really sought to achieve that. Um, it was lonely up there, um, and I think it just wasn't a very skillful way to live. It was based on competition and always looking over your shoulder, trying to make sure that no one else was catching up. Um, I have a little anecdote <laughs> I like to tell. A few years ago, God, it's been probably 10 years ago, um, I received this award. It's a Guggenheim Fellowship. It's a big deal in my world, especially in the academic world, but in the artistic world as well. And when I got the letter 
that said, you are receiving the Guggenheim Fellowship, my first thought was, am I ever going to get the MacArthur Genius? <laughs> and how wretched a life is that? <laughs> I mean, really, when, it, it was a, when I stopped and thought about it, I was like, you are a sad person. Um, particularly after you've had a little success, uh, the pressure to just keep innovating and breaking your own, you know, record of excellence is is very intense and and exhausting, um, and you feel like a fraud all of the time because everyone expects you to deliver something brilliant, and you expect that of yourself, but in your heart you know you're not brilliant, or maybe you're only brilliant on Tuesdays and Sundays. <laughs> But it ain't where you live, and it's um, it's this feeling of carrying falsehood with you, this burden of falsehood. Um, there's a slogan that I absolutely love from Pema Chodron: "Abandon all hope of fruition." I just I, I say that to myself every day. I interpret it to mean we get so wrapped up in becoming a great artist, a great lover, a great meditator, whatever, that we're always future focused. <clears throat> we're actually always in thinking about what's next. How am I going to become this thing? And um, you know, I'm 60 some years old and I'm director of this company and I teach at a wonderful university and I I don't in any way feel like I've reached a point of arrival or that I've become anything except a student of, you know, trying to learn how to get to where I, where I want to be. Um, so becoming has not served me very well. I'm trying to um, set it aside. Can't ever get rid of it, but trying to, you know, lessen its loud voice. Um, Actually, um, I'm going to ask you to just breathe with me for a moment. Um, and, and while we're breathing, I'm going to ask us to do it in a specific way, but I want to re remind us that while we're breathing, we're not becoming. The beauty of concentrating on the breath, concentrating on the body, is that in that brief moment, you're not focused on becoming. So let's just breathe on the in-breath, kind of like a mantra, say to yourself, I'm breathing in, I'm aware that I'm breathing in. And on the out-breath, I'm breathing out, I'm aware that I'm breathing out. Try to make that statement last for the whole breath. I'm breathing in, I'm aware that I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. I'm aware that I'm breathing out. So in that moment, you're cultivating awareness of the moment itself. And if we do that enough, meditate and you know, learn how to calm 
all the exterior stuff, um, we can actually start to transfer that a little bit into our lives. I'm, I'm talking to my mother. I'm aware that I'm talking to my mother. Even though she's driving me crazy. I'm, I'm crazy. I'm aware that I'm crazy. <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but it's actually true that we can begin to have that um, presence of where we are and not be skipping ahead to, I'm going to kill her <laughs> or I'm going to hang up the phone. Or, um, and I wanted to bring that, that more fully into my art practice or process. Um, that experience or that sense of a full experience of the moment, of creating variables in the studio where we would be fully aware and attuned to what we were having to do in that moment. Almost like creating little obstacles or puzzles that we had to solve so we'd be so fully engaged in the moment that we wouldn't be thinking about you know, where, we, where we were going. Or we, most importantly, and this gets harder as you get deeper into the process, it's easy to go in the, in the early days and play. It gets harder when the, when the show's coming up and the deadline is upon you to not start thinking about, am I going to get a good review? Are the accolades going to come in? Is this going to be better than the last one? It's, it gets harder. Um, but there is a way to do it. Um, I, I wanted to I wanted to keep myself and the people in the room that I'm working with focused on what interests me right here. How can I bring my full experience of myself? How can I bring myself, my vulnerable self, into this moment? I'm not pretending to be an expert or something I'm not. I'm going to bring all of me to this moment and this thing that we're doing. And I, I do want to digress for a moment and talk about vulnerability because it's an important <coughs> driver for me. Um, when I started first coming to Dharma Talks, I don't know, 10, 15, no, probably longer than that ago, and people would talk about the first noble truth that life is suffering, that we ourselves are going to suffer, that this suffering is inevitable, just as sickness and death are inevitable. Um, I just found such relief in that acknowledgement. For me, it was like, oh, yes, I'm suffering, and I don't have to hide it all the time. I don't have to suppress it all the time. It was so huge for me, I can't tell you. Um, and that somehow led me pretty directly to, I'm imperfect, and I will always be imperfect. And that's what it means to be human, and it's something beautiful in it. It's not something to be avoided at all costs. Um, eventually, I may mean, think with meta practice and meditation, you can even grow to love yourself in your most imperfect state. 
the most imperfect parts of you. Um, I do believe that, and I've experienced some of that. Um, and then the next stage for me, which I'm still working on, is you don't have to then keep trying to fool everyone else into thinking that you're perfect or that you're not imperfect. We'll leave that lie. Um, a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. Recognizing and identifying our suffering is like the work of a doctor diagnosing an illness. He or she says, if I press here, does it hurt? And we say, yes, this is my suffering. This has come to be. The wounds in our heart become the object of our meditation. We show them to our doctor, we show them to the Buddha, which means we show them to ourselves. Our suffering is us, and we need to treat it with kindness and nonviolence. We need to embrace our fear, hatred, anguish, anger, and say, my dear suffering, I know you are there. I am here for you, and I will take care of you. We stop running from our pain. With all our courage and tenderness, we recognize, acknowledge, and identify it. So um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with dance as an art form. Um, I often find it to be pretty annoying. Um, <laughs> It's all about these bodies on stage which are so flexible and beautiful and perfect and they, the dancers themselves seem to have some kind of serenity or some kind of knowledge. They breathe some air that we don't breathe. Um, and they're sexy. And they're perfect. It's, it's annoying. Um, so I, I, I really, this happened many, many years ago. I thought, what if we showed another part of the human condition in dance? Is that, would that be possible? Um, and I have to say, in the beginning, I didn't have a clue how to do that, because that was not how I was trained. I was trained to be a paragon of beauty and perfection and skill, right? Um, So I think uh, what I came to sort of slowly, and this is the start simple part, is that I, I couldn't, I, I, I had the realization, it took me longer than it should have, that these dancers who were in front of me were not skill machines, but they were actually people, imperfect people with problems and fallibilities <coughs> and, you know, just like me. And so I started doing these, uh, mostly in workshops, and then eventually in my work, I started doing these little exercises. I call them personal rituals. And I don't, again, I don't love that word anymore, but um, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to do one with me. Um, take your, your four fingers and just gently rake them across your forehead. So that's the action. Now close your eyes and do that action and feel the sensation of it. So action brings sensation. And finally, 
we're going to add intention. And I'm going to ask you to, you know, we can't ever quiet the mind, but we can maybe calm the mind a little bit. And if I feel like I'm pulling those thoughts away, those busy, busy monkey thoughts. Yeah? So one more time, with your eyes closed, action, sensation, intention. And then next I want you to take that same hand and just place it on the tip of your nose. That's the action. What's the sensation of that? Not as delicious, but what is it? And finally the intention, let's just say, I'm, I'm here. I'm still here, I'm still alive. And I'm going to notice that. And then, um, look at me for a second. We're going to take these five fingers and we're going to very slowly and gently land them on around the sternum area. But a gentle landing, like a moon landing. Right, right there. What's the sensation? You have to do it slowly and gently. What's the sensation? And the intention is, I am fragile. I am vulnerable. I'm, I'm accepting that. I'm queer. I'm different. Whatever works for you. So, Landing, gently, sensation and intention. And finally, just flatten that hand and cover it with the other hand. Sensation, what is the sensation? I'm going to treasure this fragility because it makes me perceptive. It helps me to understand the world and to be compassionate. It's my gift. Now we're going to do the whole thing. This is like a class, y'all. <laughs> Fingers coming gently across, calming the monkey mind, touching the tip of the nose. I'm here still alive. Moon landing, I'm fragile and broken and vulnerable. Hands, I'm accepting that and realizing that it gives me strength to do things in the world, to be perceptive. Let's do it once without me talking. If you forget something, it doesn't really matter. You can make up your own. The power of 
these personal rituals is, um, and you, you know, you can make them up, uh, is that they're like reminders, they're like um, keys into the way that you want to see yourself or the way that you want to live. So they are sort of a tool for skillful living. As an artistic mm, fodder, um, I think you can imagine pretty easily how, you know, these things, even just by putting in a transition, can become powerful. But you still want to use the, um, the clarity of the intention. Because when you see someone moving that way, um, you, you, you may not know exactly what they're thinking, but you'll feel what they're feeling. So it's, a, it's actually a pretty powerful artistic tool. Um, uh, another quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, very short one, mental formations are in every cell of the body. So I, I like to think that, I think when I first read that quote, I thought, oh, mental formations, those are bad things. Most of my mental formations are things that limit me. But we can also create mental formations with the body. It's kind of what we just did. So I think it can work both ways, and I think that's really powerful. Um, I'm going to take a little detour into um, a book that some of you might know, and if you don't know it, I strongly recommend it. And my friend John Goodman, who's a visual artist, introduced me to it. It's called Wabi Sabi. Does anybody know? By Leonard Corin, not Leonard Cohen, but Leonard Cohen. Uh, Wabi Sabi, this is Corin's words, Wabi Sabi is a beauty of things imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. It is a beauty of things modest and humble. It is a beauty of things unconventional. And I think I was already doing this when I picked up the book, but I was like, oh my God, this person's really saying it, what I want to do. Um, how do we create a beauty of things modest and humble? And isn't that closer to who we are? <coughs> if we could do that, it's, it's so beautiful. Beauty of things unconventional, that's easy. I had that down, I knew what that was. Um, but a beauty of things imperfect, impermanent, and very importantly, incomplete. Because we're not paragons. We are these incomplete things that are constantly becoming. Um, again, this is Corin's words. Wabi-sabi seemed to me a nature-based aesthetic paradigm that restored a measure of sanity and proportion to the art of living. Wabi-sabi resolved my dilemma about how to create beautiful things without getting caught up in the dispiriting materialism that usually surrounds such creative acts. Wabi-sabi, deep, multidimensional, elusive, appeared the perfect antidote to the pervasively <coughs> slick, saccharine, corporate style of beauty that I felt was desensitizing American society. So wabi-sabi, I'm trying to give you an example if you see a 
you know, the beautiful Japanese flower arranging. There's always kind of a broken stem that kind of wanders off or a dead piece of moss or something. That, that recognition of decay, that we are in the process of decay all the time, that recognition of the, 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 the weak thing, the weak link, even some of the raku pottery, which is the, the glazing is very kind of damaged or broken or inconsistent. That imperfection is uh, really its beauty is more beautif- beautiful than perfect symmetry. It's more beautiful than the glossy finish. So that's just really profound stuff for me. Um, and, you know, again, it serves me at, in my life aside from my art making. They're sort of hard to separate, but I, I like to look for that imperfection in my friends. And boy, is it there. <laughs> um, so, to not look for the paragon of beauty, the perfection, the symmetry, but to look for the sweet, sad elements, maybe even approach them with a sense of humor, um, that sort of became my mission. Uh, This is Rumi. Someone who doesn't make flowers makes thorns. If you're not building rooms where wisdom can be openly spoken, you're building a prison. So that led me to think that I could find a purpose in my art making beyond recognition, beyond being uh, aesthetically smart. Um, I could actually have, find a purpose. If you're not building rooms where wisdom can be openly spoken, you're building a prison. And I have to say now, when I go to see these spectacles of beauty, I'm not going to name names, but you know this, this stuff that's out there in such abundance, it feels like a prison to me, because I feel like what an opportunity you have to th- ask us to think about something, to ask us to go into the interior of our lives and make them richer, to cultivate something. And all you're showing us is beauty, empty beauty, that actually feels very separate from me. Um, and at the, you know, it's, yeah, enough about that. Um, um, it became clear to me that I wasn't going to find the soft, vulnerable side of being human by imposing my vision, I'm very anti-vision these days, onto a group of dancers and asking them to fulfill my vision. Because that's like asking for a urine sample, you know. Here, here's the cup, fill it up. Um, and, but I, again, I, 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 
I didn't really know. I mean, I'd always been taught that as the choreographer, as a director, you already know the answer and you're just, you know, filling in the blanks. Um, I had to really let go of control. I had to stop teaching people steps and stop asking people to think like me. That was a really hard one. Because originally I thought that was my job. I'll go into this room and I'll get people to think like me. Because who could be smarter than me? Um, and I, I, I start, I, the, my way out of that trap was to start devising prompts. So I'd say things like, and these are things that I've actually said, um, what happens if you try to push her over and she won't let you? Or how do you move when there is an itch under your skin, one that you can't scratch? Or what if you move through the person who's beside you like a vapor, like a thing with no weight that can barely be seen. So these little poetic prompts freed people to come up with creative solutions. And of course they were amazing and not things that I would have even thought of. And then, um, and that was, um, I don't know, that was uh, really important for me. Especially if I could really hear them. If I could really hear and see the answers. Then that would lead me to the next prompt. Right? Not my plan, right? But the prompt responding to what I'm really seeing and hearing. To what they care about. To what they're in. And then that that becomes a kind of, you have a kind of momentum there that just builds something really beautiful. Um, and I think, um, for me, the, 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 the part that was so surprising, and I don't know why it was, because it makes total sense, is suddenly they had ownership <coughs> of the material in a way that they never had ownership before when I was asking them to think like me. They had ownership because they hadn't learned it. They had made it. And suddenly I was in a community of makers, a community of equals. And that was really exciting. Um, I was no longer the owner. I was more like the preparer of the earth, tilling it, making it more fertile, so something could grow. And it's amazing to see those little seeds blossom. I mean, it's really, it's so beautiful. Um, and also I think that for me, uh, what keeps me in the game after all these years is uh, that loss of ownership it's like glimpsing the concept of no self. Uh, the work is not mine. It's maybe not even ours. It might even be something beyond that. 
it's something that's happening in the alchemy of the moment. And that's really um, profound. Uh, and to not, to not be looking at the work seeking my own reflection was such a relief. It was truly a relief. Because um, suddenly I was looking at something with real curiosity. I was looking at the material, I was looking at the topic, I was looking at the thing that had emerged with curiosity and appetite for it. Not, does it look like me? And are we gonna get a good review? Um, and in fact, I haven't read a review in over 20 years, and it's been a real pleasure. Um, a quote from Marcel Proust, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And I found my eyes in, in, this, in the eyes of all these people that I work with. Um, so that's been pretty profound. Um, I want to do one more little exercise with you, if I may. This one involves a partner. And you just turn to somebody who's near you. Ah, and George, if we're not evenly distributed, I'm going to ask you to sit out. I need Everybody have a partner? Grab somebody. Right there. Okay. This is something... Turn to your partner. You don't need to see me. Just, just listen. Um, this is something I do in every workshop. Something I often will stop in the middle of rehearsal and do. Because it's the most important thing, and that is seeing each other. So I'm going to ask you to look in your partner's eyes. Make some contact with them. Some kind of you know, touch the knee or something, get comfortable with each other. Um, and I, I know it can be challenging, but I'm going to ask you to really look in each other's eyes. And the first and hardest thing that you have to do is kind of gently dismiss your assumptions. You may know this person quite well, you may know them not at all, you may know them only by sight but you don't know them. You don't know the depth of their pain or their capacity for love or there's so much that you don't know. So let it go, you know, just because they have that haircut and those wrinkles or whatever, it doesn't tell you very much. You're basing that judgment on very little information. So we're gonna try and look at the animal Keep looking at the eyes. Look at the eyes are tissue and membrane and a lot of water. And I, I'm going to imagine that I stepped into a clearing and I saw this animal and it's not an elk or a caribou. It's this thing that I don't know. I don't know what it, it clearly isn't going to hurt me. Can I just let it be what it is in all of its gloriousness? 
because I sense that there is a great capacity there for love and understanding and feeling and knowing. Can I just enjoy that? Look inside that and enjoy its possibilities without asking it to do something for me or be something that I want it to be or that I thought it was going to be or without protecting myself from it. This takes real courage to be unprotected in front of the, the strange being. So, I'm going to ask you to um, go even a step further. Can I see the love that this being is capable of? without any regard for myself. Can I see the love? And now can I feel reciprocally what's happening between us? That I am being seen and my capacity for love and for pain is being seen and being held in this moment. Because once we establish that, we can do anything together. So now just, just lift your hands up. Let's take a little prayer pose, but in front of the chin. Keep your eye contact with your partner. Keep Keep staying with your partner. And I just want you to begin to move. It might be a gesture, it might be a sway, it might be something you do. Don't bring those hands too far away from the face because then I'll lose my partner and I want to stay connected. I'm just going to do like a, like a little mirror exercise, but there's no leader. And believe me, you have to be honest with yourself about this. I am not going to lead. We're both going to follow. And something may happen. Maybe something won't happen. Maybe we'll just enjoy being here in, in stasis. But, you know, there is no stasis. So if you watch carefully enough, you'll find movement. And just follow. See what happens. And most importantly, enjoy the ride. So don't think. Feel the little cloud that you're on. And, and when you get lost, come back to the capacity for love that you see in front of you.
what if I entered into a contract with this person that we're not going to be afraid that my eyes are a safe place to be and his eyes are a safe place to be Maybe give your partner a little hug. (laughs) I think, uh, yeah, I think take a moment to discuss that with your partner. lively conversation, so yeah, I think that's a good thing. Um, anything that you'd like to report back to the group uh, that you felt, discovered, heard? I do want to say, there's lots of things I'd like to say, but I want to say thank you, not just for your being here presenting what you presented, but for my experiencing what I remember as the most gentle and wise um, talk that I but anything about this little thing that you just did? No? You're keeping it to yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was uncomfortable at first, and uh, I realized, like, the person I was with, like, his eyes, people's kept, like, searching, and then. Finally, that's the point where, and also for me, like, we're able to like actually settle and get to But it was also, um, I can't think of an adjective, but um, fascinating. It's fascinating that we're able to communicate without even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was grateful just to. It was. Uh, I found it easy to look into and look in my partner's eyes, but sometimes I, I noticed that I like, feel wobble up, you know, in other ways. <laughs> so this was a great reminder mm-hmm. to like be, you know, like in the world and continuously removing that wall. Sometimes mm-hmm. I don't notice it comes back. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. And just imagine that if you were in an artistic, you know, collaborative situation with somebody to do this. Is a, it's just huge, it's huge. It's very hard to be a dick after you do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I appreciated your guidance in this because I was saying to my partner, if I was relying on my own mind, when we were just looking at each other, my mind would do a lot of crazy things. Mm-hmm. And so your guidance was really connecting. Good. And then we have time for a couple of questions. 
Yeah. Um, tell, tell us more about why you are suspicious of uh, the idea of talent and genius. Oh. Um, I mean, I'm sure it, it exists. Who is it? Beethoven or Bach, one of those characters, Mozart, you know, playing concertos at age three or something. I mean, that's freakishly something, talented. Um, but to center one's thinking around that, or to try to cultivate that, or to try to hold on to that as your prize, is very alienating. It's very, it separates you from people. It's a separator. And I feel like we went through this whole period of modern art, um, which I, much of my work is in opposition to, which was very opaque. Here's this abstract painting, or here's this abstract dance or something, and I don't know what the hell it is. And I feel like a rube standing in front of it, because I don't know what, it, what it's about. But it feels like it's come from God. It has some divine, this artist has been touched with something that is for them, and I get, I get the crumbs. <laughs> and I, I, I just feel like it's, it's, I don't know, I feel like it's borderline evil when we start cultivating genius because it makes us very comfortable with having the seven veils of modern art dropped in front of us because I'm a genius, you can't question me. Yeah, and I, um, so it's something that I, I you know, I, I teach young artists all the time, many of whom think they're geniuses, and I say, you know, maybe, maybe you are, but what, what do you have to say? What is the conversation that you want to enter into? And how can you focus on that rather than focus on pumping up your genius? Because that really is ego-driven. I mean, really, then, then you're making art that's monolithic and unquestionably great but who's it for? It's for you. It's not really for anybody else. And that's a very austere opinion, but that's my true opinion. I can't help myself. Yeah. Um, I, I was curious, like, um, because of the position you're in, um, I believe like um, there's a certain sense of control, um, you know, especially if you say you're a choreographer. So um, it seems like that's a big shift to let go of that control. Um, like, how are you able to achieve that? Because you know, you've been trained to have a vision and to be able to like fulfill that and communicate that to others. So, how are you able to make that? Seems like a really big shift. It, it's a huge shift, and it was very, very difficult, and continues to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. And when I'm tired or in a rush or against a deadline, I find myself reverting back. And I immediately see that the results are not going to be good. Mm -hmm. I get immediate feedback, thank goodness. Not so much that people say, oh, you suck. But, but I see that the work suffers because I'm relying on me pushing it, me saying, think like me. And let's get this done because it's 
tomorrow. <laughs> you know, um, I, I revert, but the it's a process of reminding myself that that isn't what makes me happy, and it isn't what gets results really. It isn't what makes transformative art. So, yeah, it's a process. Joe. Yeah. Uh, quick comment and then a question. Um, what you said about beauty in art maybe being a prison, um, I, I, I would have to, and you don't have to address it now because it's not a question, but I guess I feel like some art, like when I go to the ballet, it really speaks to me and it makes me feel something and it makes me wonder why I'm feeling something. Or, and there is an interaction and it's not, it is still perfect. So. I'm just questioning that. Mm -hmm. But my question is, you've talked a lot about how your practice, your Buddhist practice, has influenced your art, and I know it's a dialogue, sort of, but have you thought about how your art influences your practice? I'm just wondering if, if you have anything to say about that. Well, I really do want to answer you on the first thing, mm -hmm. because I, I totally agree with you. There are things that I see that are beautiful that somehow um, have heart mm. and have uh, lived experience mm. in them that are beautiful. Mm. So I'm not totally, totally, totally allergic to that. <laughs> but I just feel like it's a bit of a trap to can be for people yeah. trying to make beauty and trying to deny anything else. Um, I actually think what I make is incredibly beautiful. So don't get me wrong. I think it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But it's a different kind of beauty. It's coming with a more inclusive kind of beauty, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then I've forgotten the second part. Oh, my, my practice. Uh, yeah, gosh. Your art affecting your practice. Yeah. Uh, it, that's a hard one to answer because my art kind of is my practice. Mm. Every day before rehearsal, we do an hour on the floor of this kind of what I call movement for humans, which is really just a kind of meditation using parts of the body. So that is my practice. That's where I get, that's where I do it. Anybody else have a question? Yeah. yeah I'm curious as how audiences react to a, a sort of a, an inner. Yeah, performance rather than the exterior performance? Uh, well, I'm, I'm probably misleading you in that my work is full of skill. There's a lot of skillful things happening. There's a lot of very, fairly acrobatic movement and there's a lot going on. So there are many, hopefully there are many entry points into it. You can be seduced by the humor. It often has an element of humor. You can be seduced by the, the, the kinetic thrill of the movement. Or you can enter into the content, which tends to be more around the stuff that I was saying um, about how we're broken and vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, I thank you, Joe. This has been a wonderful talk. And I I think my experience of dance has been to uh, 
appreciate it as a uh, celebration of embodiment, mm -hmm. which is something that um, is always imperfect. Mm -hmm. But somehow through uh, dance, embodiment is shown to manifest feeling, and that seems to be directly communicated from the dancer to <coughs> me, which is just miraculous for me. It can be. It yeah. can be. And it, it can happen in all styles of dance that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. I agree. of being an artist, yes. that happened really early for me. Mm -hmm. I feel very, very lucky in that way. And I'm not, I'm not sure why. I was a little sissy boy in Virginia, you know, uh, and making spectacles in the backyard mm -hmm. with my sister and um, directing them and performing in them. And, you know, started taking dance classes when I was seven years old followed my sister to dance class, the typical story from a chorus line. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I've just always known it was what I was going to do. I've never been particularly good at anything else, as I evidenced earlier by looking at this machine and going, I have no idea how to turn it on. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, so there never seemed like another choice and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I, I also, you know, sometimes I feel a little bereft that I, you know, didn't choose other paths or have the capacity to go other directions. I feel like there's things I perhaps missed, but it's always been, you know, a joy to, to be where I am. And, you know, I, there were times that were dim in terms of I wasn't producing a lot, nobody cared. I was maybe writing in my, you know, attic. So there have been those times for sure, but uh, it's never been a question for me that I would do anything else. I mean, I waited on tables, did a lot of that, but yeah. I, I, I love, you know, people, so many people now have three careers or three lives, totally different. Like I was an accountant and then I was a, Worked in a nonprofit, and then I retired as a missionary in Burma, and I was like, "Oh my God, I love that!" And I've just been doing the same thing my whole life, and probably will until I drop dead. But um, that's my path. So. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any announcements? Once again, I would like to remind people of the wisdom stories about that <coughs> day-long retreat that's coming up in less than three weeks. <laughs> and we here, uh, 
there will be a free meal. It's running on Saturday, March 23rd, starting at 9.30 a.m. The program runs from 10 to 5. Um, and this, the request is that you actually provide not a speaker rather than any other separate position. So there are still places available, so if you're interested, there are sheets on the credenda which will give you all the instructions on how to sign up. Who is the speaker? Her name is Cindy Spring. And she actually has a website by that name if you want to find out more about her. Thank you. Thank you. Any more announcements? Uh, besides being your facilitator, I'm also your host. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are organic mandarin oranges out there from Rainbow. Please help yourself. I'll be coming around with Don Bowl. Um, Don is probably worth for generosity, and uh, your contributions help support the Sangha. We pay for this space, and our speakers, and uh, Lauren Street dinners, and uh, newsletters sometimes goes to prisoners, people are incarcerated, so please be generous. Suggested donation is $10. And sometimes people meet at the door at 12.30 to go out for lunch. Welcome to do that, and there's a sign-up sheet on the credenza if you're interested in being on our email. And we'll gather in a circle for the official <laughs> So, one more announcement. I don't, for those of you who know John Anderson, he broke his leg on Monday and mm -hmm. um, he's laid up, so just send him positive thoughts this week. That's all. You might not see him for a few weeks. So. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment, or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all living. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.